All right, let's get started this morning. I wanted to read something to you that I posted this morning on Facebook. I just was thinking and the Lord kind of brought this to my mind considering the time of the year we're in. and There's a lot of people out there that would be very critical of the fact that we're singing Christmas carols this time of year. They'd be critical of the fact that you would have a Christmas tree here, that we would even use the word Christmas or you know, would go on and on and on about how Christmas is rooted in pagan traditions and spend all their time and energy talking about those things and yet seem to have no concern about the coming of Christ or the fact that what Jesus began at Bethlehem is yet to be completed and that we should be looking for these things. They would seem to overlook the fact that the angels saw reason to rejoice when Christ came into the world. Uh, they would overlook the fact that God chose to reveal to us the details of Christ's birth and that those details are worth celebrating. Now, I don't deny that a lot of our traditions are rooted in pagan things. I mean, the wedding ring is rooted in a Catholic ceremony. The wedding, typical wedding service we use in our American culture is rooted in the Catholic Church. You know, some of these pagan traditions, we're separated so far in space and time from them, none of us know what they are. And I don't presume to judge the heart of someone uh, that would have a Christmas tree in their home. However, I do, we cannot deny that this holiday in our culture has become so secular. Even the churches who claim to be celebrating the birth of Christ not only refuse to look with anticipation at His second advent, but everything's about the world. It's about presents and trees. I mean, there are churches that have hanging of the greens ceremonies and all of these things. When the attitude that we have typically at Christmas ought to be something we have 24-7, 365 days a year. So I was just thinking about this and it kind of ties into the message this morning. I wrote these words and I hope they're an encouragement to you. For the Christian who is afloat in the dark and troubled mingled waters of American secularism and American religion, are you looking for Messiah? Are you eagerly awaiting His second advent? As was Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna, the wise men from the east, the shepherds, and the rest of the faithful on the eve of His first advent. Should we not be more like these instead of caught up in all the festivities and trees and presents and shopping and Santa Claus mythology and the Christianizing of things that were never Christian in the first place? Shouldn't our worship and rejoicing concerning the first advent of Messiah be more like the heavenly host that appeared to the shepherds as opposed to a disingenuous and short-lived acknowledgement of a holiday or a season? Shouldn't our worship and joy concerning Emmanuel translate into a 24-7, 365 merry anticipation of Christ coming to complete what began at Bethlehem? Not what was finished, what began. Are we waiting for, looking for the appearing of Messiah in genuine faith? Are we occupying faithfully until He comes? This is the true celebratory spirit of Christ's advent, is it not? The greatest gift you can give anyone during this holiday season isn't wrapped in fancy paper and it's not topped with a bow. It isn't under any Christmas tree. No, this gift of love is to preach the glorious gospel of Christ incarnated, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and Christ soon coming again. 
and preach it all year long to the whole wide world. The days are short. Go tell it on the mountain. I don't have a problem using the word Christmas. In fact, if you look at it, that word mass is an old English word that comes from the low Latin. It predates the Catholic Church and its use of the term mass to refer to the blasphemous sacrifice of Christ at the Eucharist. The word mass in low Latin comes from misa, which means to rest or to labor. A holiday or a feast, a time to rest from our labors. And so that's where that word mass comes. And the Catholic Church in the Latin kind of took that word mass and did with it what American society is trying to do with the word marriage today. They redefined it to mean something, you know, focused on a fresh sacrifice of Christ in the ceremony of the Eucharist that the book of Hebrews calls blasphemy. And so they wrenched that word out of its original use in the low Latin and changed it to be something else, something very different. I mean, something very similar to what we're seeing happen with the word marriage today. But I found it interesting. I was looking and somebody's calling me from Nepal while I'm here trying to preach. What is that all about? It's not Bishnu's number either. I don't know what that's about. Um, goodness. But in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, this is one of the uh, standard uh, dictionaries for the English language, and I always refer to it. This is how the, the word mass is defined. Um, this primary definition, listen to this, a lump, a body of matter concreted, collected, or formed into a lump, applied to any solid body as a mass of iron or lead, a mass of flesh, a mass of ice, a mass of dough. A body of matter concreted or collected. Isn't Christ, God, divinity, creator, concreted or collected into a lump of flesh? Isn't that what Christ is in His incarnation? So Christmas is the collection, Christ mass, the collection of divinity of the fullness of the Godhead into a lump of flesh. So if we want to go back to what Christmas means, not Christ Mass, not the Mass in the Catholic Church that celebrated on December 25th, we can't know when Christ was born. There's as much of a chance of Him being born uh, in, in, the, in the fall or the, or, the, or the early winter as there is in the spring. We don't know. I mean, it, it's not winter in Israel is not winter in Alaska. I mean, it snows there from time to time, but there could have been shepherds in the field in December just like there could have been in July. They're a lot closer to the equator, uh, and, and, and the weather's a lot milder. It did snow in Cairo, Egypt for the first time in 100 years the other day. Did you guys know that? It dumped three feet of snow in Jerusalem. And so uh, it, that was pretty amazing, pretty amazing. But Christ Mass, Christmas, the collection of divinity into a lump of flesh that Christ might become the redemptive sacrifice for man. That's what Christmas ought to be for us. So when we use that word, if we're going to use it, let's think about what it is. It's not, you know, the Catholic Church may celebrate a Mass, but it's not about that. It's about the incarnation of Christ. His appearing. And just as these characters we read about in the New Testament were eagerly waiting the coming of Messiah in troubled days, we ought to be eagerly awaiting the coming of Messiah in troubled days. Are we really any different than them? 
Is Christmas about something or is our Christian life, our salvation about something that's in the past? Or does it involve an an eager awaiting just like it did for Abraham who looked for a city that had foundations that were not made by hands? but a city and builder of God uh, that was made by God. Just like all of those listed in Hebrews 11, those great men and women of faith who didn't see the fulfillment of the promise because God did not intend to fulfill those promises without us coming alongside and enjoying that fulfillment. So are we really any different than Simeon in the temple? Are we waiting the coming of Messiah, occupying until He comes? He came once, just as it was prophesied in the Scriptures. As a star in Judah, He'll come again as a scepter in Israel. Are we waiting for that? That's what the spirit of Christmas, quote-unquote, ought to be. And it ought not to be a December thing. It ought to be a 24-7, 365 thing. It ought to be reflected in our preaching. It ought to be reflected in our daily witness. Not just a Christ who was born. The world wants to keep the little innocent baby Christ in a manger. They don't want the full-grown Christ who's got a crown on His head who comes with a sword to wage war, who comes to set up a kingdom. The church doesn't want that. But that's what we desire. That's what those people in Luke 1, Luke 2, Matthew chapter 1 desired. And it began at Bethlehem. It didn't end there. It began at Bethlehem. It continued at Calvary, but it isn't done. It'll complete itself at Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem and in the new heavens and the new earth. So, I think that's kind of an interesting take on this time of year, and it ought not be a time of year. It ought to be an all-year thing for us. Why do we only sing Christmas hymns at Christmas? I don't know. Joy to the world, we sang this morning. That's not talking about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Have you listened to the words? That's talking about the second coming of Christ. When He sets up a kingdom, the two are so tied together that you can't separate them. Think about the words next time we sing that song. That's talking about what we should be waiting for. Maybe we ought to sing these. Maybe we ought to listen to them. Have a, all year round, I don't know, something to think about. But we're going to be talking about that advent of Christ today. The advent that began at Bethlehem. And just as sure as Christ fulfilled prophecies relating to His birth in detail and literally... More than 48 details of Jesus Christ's life were fulfilled in His birth, His earthly life, His death, burial, and resurrection, His first advent. And just as sure as those prophecies were filled, fulfilled literally, so will the prophecies concerning His second advent. I marvel at those who would stand and preach on a college campus and they would talk about how the Bible can be trusted because Jesus fulfilled these prophecies literally, 48 details. And yet this same preacher would deny a literal return of Christ to set up a kingdom. And they would take the whole book of Revelation and claim that it took place in the past. And not all of these prophecies about the second coming are figurative and allegorical. And it's, and it's Israel replacing the church. How is that possible? How can you sit here and claim that they were fulfilled literally in His first advent, but not in His second advent? No, the truth is the two are together. And just as we saw them fulfilled in times past, we can rest assured they'll be fulfilled in the future. We ought to be like Simeon and Anna waiting, looking for the Messiah every day because He's coming for His church. He's coming for His bride. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet, talking with me which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. To understand what's going on in the book of Revelation, we cannot deny, and I've said this many times, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I want you to get it. Repetition is the key to knowing sometimes. Christ gave us His outline of this book in chapter 1, verse 19. John was commanded to write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. What John was told to write from the past was what he had seen in the vision of Christ standing amongst the candlesticks. The vision of Christ in His judicial and magisterial glory. Quite different from the image of Christ that John saw on the cross. More like what John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then John is told to write the things which are. We see the things which are. Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. A prophetic foreview of the present age, the present dispensation, the church age. And now, after this, chapter 4, we get into the third part of the book. The things which shall be hereafter. That phrase in the Greek that we translate, after this, and then later at the end of the verse, hereafter, it's the same phrase. It, it's tied specifically to what just took place or what preceded in the text. So after this, that is the letters to the seven churches, a door was opened in heaven, John was told to come up, and he was told to write the things which must be hereafter. After what? After the church age. After the things which are. So if the things which are the church age, then the things which are hereafter are those things which will take place after the church age. The church age, I believe, ends with Christ coming for His church at the rapture. I don't believe this is an obscure doctrine that was made up by a theologian in the 19th century. I don't believe it's some obscure doctrine that came from the, the dreams and visions of a blind girl like people ignorantly proclaim. Those that mock people like us who believe and wait for a rapture. People that would say, well, the rapture isn't true because people that believe in it are sitting around doing nothing. That's true concerning a lot of Southern Baptist Christians who would claim to believe in a rapture and they're sitting around basically like the man in the parable who was given a talent and he buried the talent in the earth. Ricky had someone say to him recently, I don't believe in the rapture because the people who believe in it sit around and do nothing. Ricky just chuckled. He said, you know what friend, I believe in the rapture. My ministry partner Jesse believes in the rapture. And if you want to call preaching the Gospel in more than 40 countries, being arrested for the Gospel, suffering a beating at the hands of a mob for the Gospel, sitting around and doing nothing, then so be it. Foolishness. Just because people hold to a doctrine but don't live the way they should doesn't mean the doctrine's wrong. To make that leap is called reactionary theology. I could sit here and say, well, the Catholic Church officially is pro-life. So a pro-life doctrine must be wrong because Catholicism is a pagan religion. That's foolish. 
people that live in error can actually hold or claim to hold the things that are true. Nicodemus understood some things that were true, but he also did err not knowing the Scriptures. To those who would deny the rapture of Christ for His church prior to the period of God's wrath and the tribulation, I would say you do err not knowing the Scriptures. We actually see a type of the rapture here in Revelation 4 at the very place that it happens in God's prophetic calendar. John sees a door in heaven. He hears a voice like a trumpet saying, Come up hither. And then we see in verse, in verse uh, 3, He immediately was in the Spirit in heaven in the throne room of God. So, beginning with Revelation 4, we have the third major part of the book. And it covers the largest part of the book. It is the things hereafter. In other words, the things after the church age. Just so you get kind of an idea of where the book is going from here on, we have the period of the tribulation, which is Daniel's 70th week. We're going to talk about that later. You can't really understand Revelation without Daniel. And we know that in Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, a week, a day stood for a year. So a week was seven years. God had a prophetic calendar for Israel that involved 70 weeks of sevens. 490 years. Okay? 483 of those prophetic years took place. And then after those 483 years, God said Messiah would be cut off. Jesus was crucified after the end of the 69th week. And the people of the prince that should come would come into Jerusalem and destroy the city and the temple. That was the Romans. The people of the prince that would come, Antichrist. So we know that after those 69 prophetic weeks, Messiah would be cut off and Jerusalem would be destroyed. That happened. It's very interesting that those things happened after, immediately after the fulfillment of those 483 years, beginning with the decree that was given to build Jerusalem. Between the 69th and the 70th week, we have a pause in Israel's prophetic calendar. It's like an atomic clock that ticks and radiation decays. There are things that cause a pause in the atomic clocks. You know, the, the evolutionary theory, theorists uh, assume a whole lot. You know, uh, uh, evolution is, is based on uniformitarianism, which says that everything we see happening today, every process we see happening today, happens exactly like it always has. It leaves no room for catastrophes or events in outer space that could cause things like atomic clocks to reset. We know that magnetism can cause atomic clocks to reset, and yet we're supposed to trust C-14 dating as if that could never have been reset. But God's atomic or prophetic clock, where Israel was concerned, paused. And when the church is taken out of the world, that clock starts ticking again. You see, there's a week left in God's program and plan for the redemption of Israel. That week is seven years. That seven years is what's called the tribulation. The last three and a half years of that seven years is what Jesus calls the great tribulation. So, from chapters 4 to 18, we have the period of the tribulation. That's what we're going to be looking at. God gives an outline of what's going to take place during that time. This is Daniel's 70th week. 
What we see during this period in chapter 4 and 5, we see the divine judge. We see Jesus Christ, the rightful possessor of the title deed of the earth, take back and prove that He is the kinsman redeemer. Take back from Satan what Adam gave to him. Adam was given the title deed of the earth by God. And Adam sold his birthright to Satan. And it's been in his possession under the sovereign authority of God until Jesus stands up to take it back. That seven-sealed book is the title deed of the earth. We're going to talk about that later. We see the seven seals judgments as Jesus begins to open that title deed. We see the seven trumpet judgments, which are the seventh seal. The, seventh, the, the, the seven uh, personages or the seven major characters of the tribulation. We see seven vile judgments. In chapter 19, we then have the second coming at Armageddon. Chapter 19, 17 through 21, we have the actual second coming of Christ. The second advent of Christ to the earth. Not in the air, where believers are called up together with the Lord to meet Him in the air, but Christ setting His foot on the earth. 1 through 16, I'm sorry. Second coming of Christ. Then we have Armageddon, that actual battle that takes place. Up through verse 21, we have the destruction of Satan in chapter 20. And then we have the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of the dead. Matthew's kind of got a thing, kind of got a liking for a particular genre of music that many of us would not like. And he often introduces me to these Christian hip-hop artists that write this music that has a hip-hop beat but has some really great lyrics. And I can't help but thinking of this one song that these guys wrote about heaven and hell, about eternity. And it's talking about people that are in hell. And it says that, you know, this isn't as worse as it gets because in hell you haven't even gotten judged yet. You see, hell is, a, is, is, a, is a, like the county jail. It's a holding cell. But then there's a judgment, the great white throne, where the dead are judged and sentenced to a lake of fire, the state penitentiary. And then, in, then we have the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 21, 1 through 22, 5. Let's see, this is uh, 19, 17 through 21. And then finally, we have an epilogue to the book where John is transported right back in spirit to the Isle of Patmos. And in light of all of the things that have been revealed, Christ again exhorts the church and exhorts them that would come to Him to come. It's kind of an epilogue back to John's day. And that would be 22.6 through 21. So from here to here, we have the things which are hereafter. Okay. Now, in the midst of all this, in chapter 20, right here, that's primarily concerned with the destruction of Satan, 
in verses 6 and 7, we have the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. Now the book of Revelation doesn't go into a lot of detail about the millennium because that detail is described throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11. All throughout the prophets, the millennium and the life in the millennium, even down to what the millennial temple will look like and the millennial festivals and about the nations coming and bringing their gifts to the king and how Israel will be set up and how the land will be allotted to the tribes. All of that's laid out in the, the, book of, uh, the books of the prophets. All Revelation 20 does is tell us the time frame of that millennial kingdom. So there's not a lot of detail about it other than a time frame. Someone said to me once, how can you believe in a thousand year literal reign of Christ based upon one verse in the Bible? I said, well, how many verses in the Bible do we need to believe something to be true? And besides, friend, you do err because all Revelation 20 does is give us a time frame. The entire Old Testament talks about the Millennial Kingdom. And so these are the things which shall be hereafter. I'm amazed at the use of the number 7 in the book of Revelation. The number 7 is a number of completion. You have seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments. There's seven main characters discussed in detail in the, in the tribulation period. Seven vile judgments. There's seven dooms that are pronounced. There are seven new things that the believers can look forward to in eternity. A number of completion. Revelation is completing in many ways, even in the very details, what began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What began with the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem. So this is an outline of the book going forward. The things which shall be hereafter. And remember that as you read and study this book. This isn't random stuff that's just kind of thrown in. Random visions like the, like the, the prophet Muhammad claimed to have when, the, when he uttered the Quran. The Quran is a collection of random visions and dreams that have no real outline. Kind of reads like the book of Proverbs. Just random stuff. In fact, the Hadith, which is the oral tradition, kind of like the Talmuds in Judaism, claims that when a prophecy came to Muhammad, he would begin to shake and quiver, he would foam at the mouth, and he would sometimes lay in a catatonic state on the ground, and they would cover him with a blanket. And when he would come to, he would, have, he would recite this vision that he has. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot like demon possession and not like the Spirit of God speaking to someone as He spoke to the prophecy, prophets of old. You know, the Scripture wasn't given in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake. They didn't shake and foam at the mouth as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're getting into Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and these chapters go together. Because in Revelation 4 and 5, we have the introduction of the divine judge. And, his, and, how, and, he, and in these chapters, he inaugurates the possession of what is rightfully his. During this period of time, we're going to see that the church, having completed its work in the world, a joyous yet sad thing, as I talked about last week, is going to be on the sidelines. Just like an injured quarterback who has to come out of the game and watch the backup try to finish the second half. The church is on the sidelines in heaven, enjoying her rest, and watches as God, the judge, begins to take back 
or Jesus the Messiah takes back what is rightfully His. All of it is God's and God's operated above Satan's poise for centuries. There is no good versus evil. God and His sovereignty is above all of that and puts all of that in motion. In fact, some would say that could make it, you know, you could claim that Satan is God's minister. He is. He's on a short leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. And God has a plan and purpose for everything. In verse 1, we see a heavenly door opened in heaven, immediately following the church age. Here, John has a vision. He's in the Spirit. He's transported to heaven. He hears a voice like a trumpet that says, come up here. And so, not only is this a vision, but it has a double meaning. These visions have a fulfillment. And the fulfillment of what John experiences here, I believe, is the rapture of the church. What is it that sounds the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15? A trumpet. What does the church do when Christ comes in the air? It goes up. It doesn't go up and make an immediate U-turn and come back to earth as the post-tribbers would claim. It goes up to be with the Lord. This is prefigured here in what happens to John. John sees a door in heaven. Now when we talk about heaven, that word in English, heaven, can refer to one of three things. It can refer to the atmosphere. We look at the atmosphere of earth the blue sky, which is not outer space. It's, it's, the light creates the image of a blue sky in our atmosphere. That's the first heaven. You know, the birds fly through the heavens. We have outer space or the starry heavens. The second heavens, what we see at night. The, the, the sun and the stars and the, the planets and the solar systems and the galaxies. And then we have the third heaven, which is the actual abode of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 had an experience much like John does here. Paul was told not to speak about those things he saw. John is told to write what he sees. But Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. That is the abode of God. This is the door opened and John is caught up to the third heaven, the throne room of God. The, the place where God lives. Is that another dimension outside our universe? I don't know. I don't know how it works, but it's not a place man can reach unless God brings him there. Like Buddha said when he was asked, how do we get to the Creator's abode? And, and Buddha said, that's not possible. The Creator would have to take you there. He'd have to send a means of transportation to take you there. We can't get to God. Men tried to do it at Babel. They tried to build a tower to heaven. The foundation of that tower, the tongue tower as it's called in Nebuchadnezzar's inscription, still stands in modern day Iraq. The scientists won't tell you that. They just want you to think the Bible's a fairy tale. But that plan failed. Man's going to try to bring heaven. Man tried to get to heaven at Babel. Under Antichrist, he's going to try to bring heaven to earth. It ain't going to happen. You don't get to God's abode unless God brings you there. That's what God does for John here, and that's what He does for the church. John says he heard the first voice, which as it were, of a trumpet talking with him. Well, what's the first voice? Look at Revelation 10, or 1. This is the first voice John heard. Revelation chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me the great voices of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send to the seven churches. 
And then verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. That voice was Christ. It was the same Christ that John saw in chapter 1 that says to him, like a trumpet, come up hither. And I, Jesus, not an angel, I'm going to show you the things which shall be hereafter. What Daniel was shown, he was shown by an angel. What John was shown, the same things, he was shown by Christ Himself. A trumpet was the voice in both cases. Come up hither. Come up here. Chapters 2 and 3 are a type of the church age. A prophetic vorview of the church age. When the church age ends, here in chapter 4, verse 1, we have a type of the rapture. This event with John takes place in the book at the very spot where the rapture of the church occurs in the future. Revelation 2 and 3, the church age, we're in it now. I believe we're in Laodicea. Church age is coming to an end. Chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture. And then chapter 4, verses 2 through 18, through chapter 18, the tribulation. What John, what we John's experience here, in a sense, is a rehearsal of the rapture of the church. A rehearsal. We say, well, what does that mean, a rehearsal? Well, this is not uncommon in the Scriptures. This typology is not uncommon with Christ or the Scriptures. There have been rehearsals, not only of the rapture here, but there was a rehearsal of the second coming of Christ. Do you know when that was? Jesus, turn with me to Matthew 16.28. There was a rehearsal of Christ's second coming. What happens at Armageddon, His coming in power and glory, and John was at that rehearsal too. Matthew 16, verse 28 says, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here. He was with His disciples. Which shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Did, are any of the disciples still alive today? No, they died. All of them except for John died a martyr's death. But look at the very next verse. In, in chapter 17, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, His brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah talking with him. What did Peter, James, and John see? They saw exactly what Jesus said some of them would see before they tasted death. They saw a rehearsal of Jesus Christ coming in His kingdom as He will come in Revelation chapter 19. Guess who was with Him? Moses and Elijah. Who was Mo Moses was a type of what? The resurrected saints. Elijah was a type of what? The translated saints. You see, when Christ comes for His church, the dead in Christ, like Moses who died and was buried by God, will be raised to life. And then which we which are alive and remain will be translated just like Elijah. And we will go to be with the Lord. And when it's time for the king or the bridegroom to come and declare His marriage publicly, he will come with His saints. 
both the resurrected saints and the translated saints. So in the Mount of Transfiguration, we have a rehearsal of the second coming. Therefore, Jesus' words were true. Peter and James and John didn't see death until they saw Christ coming in His kingdom. They're true. We had an Advent rehearsal. Look at what Jesus says to John. I find this interesting in chapter 21, verses 20 through 23, the very end of the book. Jesus tells Peter that he's basically going to give his life for Christ. He's going to be required to give his life for Christ. He's going to stretch out his arms and go to a place he doesn't want to go. We know that tradition says Peter was crucified upside down. But he was martyred. And then in verse 20, Peter starts worrying about John instead of worrying about himself. Isn't that what we do all the time? Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, that was John, and said, Lord, uh, which is he that betrayeth thee? He's talking about John. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? What about him? Jesus said, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that this disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Jesus never said John wouldn't die. He did die. He said, if I will that he tarry until I come, what is that to you, Peter? Obey me. Well, it's very interesting because I think right here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 is a fulfillment of what Jesus indicated here in John chapter 21. John was permitted to live. He was a very old man. Just like Simeon was an old man in the temple when the book of Revelation was written. When John was on the Isle of Patmos, he was an old man. Simeon was allowed to linger until he saw Messiah in human flesh and then he was content to die. John was allowed to linger until he saw the coming of Christ for his church. He'd seen the second advent. Revelation 4.1, we have a rapture rehearsal. So the second coming rehearsal took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. The rapture rehearsal takes place with John in fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 21. John was permitted to live until he saw a vision of Christ coming in the air for his church and calling his church home. In fact, John experienced it in the same way he experienced the second coming of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't that interesting how it all ties together? Those that would disavow these things do err not knowing the Scriptures. The Scriptures are full of types or typologies where a certain person or an event is a type of a greater event or personage in God's program. Look at Enoch and Noah. With Noah, God sent judgment to destroy the world like He will send judgment in the last days. Enoch was a type of the church raptured out before the judgment. Noah was a type of Israel preserved through the judgment. Seven churches. What have we talked about? Types of periods in church history. Antiochus Epiphanes in the book of Daniel was a type of Antichrist. Isaiah 14 talks about the king of Babylon. He was a type of what? Satan. Lucifer. The king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 was a type of Satan. Peter was a type of Satan. In Peter's 
desire to keep Christ from being crucified and handed over to men, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. How often are we a type of Satan in our reasoning and the way we do things in our Christian life? Maher Shalahashbaz, the son of Isaiah, was a type of Emmanuel. The prophecy in Isaiah 7 about a virgin was given to King Ahaz concerning Jesus, Emmanuel. In chapter 8, Isaiah takes a virgin to be his wife and they bear a child. Maher Shalahashbaz, which was a type of the Emmanuel that would come. And before Maher Shalahashbaz was old enough to know evil from good, both Israel and Syria were devoid of their kings. And the sign that Ahaz was told he would see, he saw. David's sufferings in the Psalms. Psalm 22. Were they not a type of Christ's sufferings? Many of the Psalms written, the, uh, the prayers of those that are suffering, the prayers against the enemies, they're types of the persecuted house of Israel during the tribulation. Lot, Sodom, was a type of the raptured church. What did the angels tell Lot had to happen before the fire came down from heaven? You've got to leave. These things can't happen until you and your family leave. You must leave. God delivered just Lot. Why would He not deliver His church? So the message of Christ here at this type of the rapture changes from hold fast what we see in the letters of the seven churches to come up hither. The rapture is rehearsed here with John at the very place it takes, it occurs in God's prophetic calendar after the church age, prior to the tribulation. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A lot of times we... You know, a lot of times we don't even know about this experience of Paul. He had a, a similar experience. I mentioned this already. Look at chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. Paul says this, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. In other words, he knew a man in an experience. He wasn't sure if it was in his body or it was a vision. He didn't know. God knows. One caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul was caught up to the third heaven and had a vision. He saw something in the third heaven that wasn't lawful for him to write. He was to keep it to himself. Daniel was told to seal up the books of the prophecy until the time of the end. It wasn't time for that revelation. But what John sees undoubtedly is very similar to what Paul saw. He's told to write. It's time to write it. It's time to write it. Not everything about it, but exactly what God wants us to know in His timing. Here we have the rapture of the church in God's prophetic calendar, chapter 4, verses 1. This is very, chapter 4, verse 1. This is very important. So in a sense, guys, I've got to stop here with the text. And we need to talk about the rapture. Because there's a lot of false teaching concerning the rapture. There's a lot of solid brethren who are faithful preachers of the gospel that are truly saved. 
but they disavow or disbelieve the rapture because they react against the lukewarmness of typical Christians that boast about a rapture but don't live as if it's coming. I can understand that. But the theology is correct. Some claim that the rapture will take place after the tribulation, at Christ's coming. An immediate U-turn in the air to come back to heaven. Some say it will take place in the midpoint of the tribulation. And that the trumpet which sounds is that seventh trumpet judgment. These are wrong doctrines, I believe. I believe they're wrong. And I believe the Scriptures clearly teach a pre-tribulational coming of Christ for His church in the air. And I don't believe this is just based on one passage. I don't believe it centers around Revelation 4.1. I don't believe it's just about 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15. I believe the principle and the mystery is revealed throughout the Scriptures. It may be veiled because it is a mystery, but it's discernible. And when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we see these things very clearly. So I want to talk about the rapture. I want to talk about where we, how, why we base, or from where do we get this doctrine? Some say it was a product of a 19th century theologian. The early, the early church fathers didn't believe in a rapture, a pre-trib rapture. Well, folks, we're living two, 20, uh, I mean, we're living uh, 20 centuries this side of the, of, of the, of the uh, initiation of the church age. So we have a lot of history to look back on that we can look back on and see fulfillment, things that people in the second, third centuries couldn't do. So just because somebody in church leadership in the second and third century couldn't discern something doesn't mean that we cannot. Okay? And besides, the early church fathers unquestionably were premillennial. They believed in the coming of Christ to set up a kingdom. That peace would only come to earth when Christ physically and literally returned to earth. They didn't believe in this post-millennial garbage put together by the Catholic Church to justify the conquering of nations and the conquering of peoples. But let's look at the scriptural basis for this doctrine of the rapture of the church. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 14 through 18. Anthony, would you read that for us? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so then also which sleep in Jesus will God bring the For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For if the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds uh, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. There we have it. One of the primary passages describing the event of the rapture. The Lord descends from the third heaven into the first heaven, the atmosphere. The dead in Christ, their bodies raise up out of the graves just like some did there in Jerusalem when Christ was raised from the dead. Those which were alive and remain are caught up 
That word rapture comes from the, the Latin verb raptura, which means to catch or to pluck. Just because the word rapture is not in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach a rapture of the Christian. I've heard people say that. Well, you'd have to say the same thing about Trinity because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But we know that God is a triune being, so that's a foolish argument. But the word rapturo comes from the Greek. It means, I mean, from the, from the Latin, to snatch, to pluck. What we have described here is God's plucking of the, of the dead in Christ and those which alive and remain in their resurrection bodies, plucking. Christ descends from the third heaven to the first heaven. We are called up where? In the clouds. To meet the Lord where? In the air. When Christ comes back to earth, His foot goes on the Mount of Olives. He comes to earth, but we're going to meet Him in the air. Are we going to meet Him so we can make an immediate U-turn and travel for two seconds right back to the earth? That doesn't make any sense. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I find it very interesting. Remember a long time ago, I was preaching on something. I don't know what it was, but we talked about how important single words are in the Scripture. And if we overlook them, we could be led into error. Even a pronoun, one of the simplest of parts of speech in any language is important. And it's funny how Paul describes the rapture here as a source of great comfort for the Thessalonians. But look at chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. In other words, I don't need to talk to you about signs and seasons to look for in terms of Christ's coming. You're looking for His rapture and the redemption of His body. I'm not going to concern you with signs and things to look for prior to His coming to the earth. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now who's He been talking to? You, 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 you. Look at verse 3. But for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. So now Paul moves into the time of tribulation. Peace, 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 and then sudden destruction. He's not saying be careful because in that day... You know, people are going to be saying peace and sudden destruction comes upon you. He says on them. It's somebody different. The pronoun change. When you move into the tribulation, the period of God's wrath there, after Paul has discussed the rapture, the subject changes. Not to us, the church, but to them, something else. The others. There are three classes of people in the world. Okay, Three classes of people. The church, which is Jew and Gentile, gathered together as a peculiar body, a peculiar priesthood, a peculiar generation for God's purposes, then you have the Jew and you have the Gentile. Three classes of people according to God. The Jew, God's covenant people, through whom Messiah came, through whom the Word was given to the world, a covenant people that God has a specific plan and a purpose for. They rejected Christ at His first coming. Many of them will perish like Korah, and the rebels perish in hell, lost for all eternity. But there's a time coming when God's going to restart that prophetic clock. And the entire nation of Israel is going to wake up and recognize Jesus as Messiah. And when they are brought to their utter end, Jesus is going to save them and He's going to set up a kingdom and rule on the throne of David as a literal king over Israel in fulfillment of all those promises. The Jew. Then you have the Gentile. The Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish ethnically. The Gentile partakes of God's goodness through the nation of Israel. There will be many Gentiles who are saved at the preaching of the Jewish remnant 
during the tribulation who will be part and parcel to the millennial kingdom. And then the Gentiles who reject God, the wicked, the heathen, will be judged. So you're either a Christian, a Jew, or a Gentile. The amazing thing is that the church is a privileged position. It's a heavenly people, not an earthly people. Christ comes to set up an earthly kingdom for the Jew in, in the millennium. But we are heavenly people looking for a heavenly home. It's a privileged position. A great mystery, not just Gentile, but Jew and Gentile together in a privileged position. Paul talks about the church here in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talks about that meeting with Christ in the air. And then he turns to them. Who is them? The Jew and the Gentile that remain when the wrath comes. Let's look at the other famous passage concerning the rapture. 1 Corinthians, anybody know what chapter that is? 15. Chapter 15, about the resurrection. Paul talks about how important and foundational the resurrection is. The resurrection of Christ to our Christian faith. Without it, we are hopelessly lost. We ought to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then he transitions into the resurrection of the saint. How the resurrection of Christ is a type of the resurrection of the saint. Do we want to know what our resurrection bodies will look like? Well, look at Jesus after His resurrection. Jesus was not flesh and blood. Blood is the flesh. The flesh carries the sin nature. Jesus was flesh and bones. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. I believe our resurrection body will be flesh and bones. Not blood. We don't need blood to sustain our life in the eternal state. Flesh and bones. What did Jesus do on the shore there in Galilee when the disciples saw Him and, he, and they, they motioned Him in and Peter caught that big old load of fishes? What was Jesus doing there on the beach? Preparing a meal. What did Jesus do with His disciples in His resurrection body? He ate and enjoyed food. Not because He needed it to survive, because eating food that God has given is an enjoyment. Jesus could move through walls. A wall didn't restrain Him. He just appeared somewhere to the disciples behind closed doors. He was walking down the road to Emmaus and then He just disappeared and went wherever He wanted to go. Our resurrection bodies will be just like that, I believe. Because they're a type. Christ was the first fruits and we followed. But that's what we, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And beginning with verse 51 through 57, he describes what will actually happen to the body of the, de the bodies of the dead and the translated saints at the rapture. Paul describes the event in Revelation 4. He describes the actual transformation in 1 Corinthians 15. So, Daddy, would you read verses 51 through 57? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here is the translation of the believer, 
the dead and the, re and the, and the translated saints is instant. Instantaneous. The twinkling of an eye. But more important than that, we see that this, Paul says, is a what? A mystery. What is a mystery? If we look through the Scriptures, we have this word mystery numerous times in the New Testament. And when it's used, it connotes truth which God hid from men in Old Testament times, but He's revealed it in the New Testament. Primarily concerning church truth or the gathering together of a church, Jews and Gentiles, a peculiar people in God's program. For instance, how often have you heard the verse and applied it to heaven and to the eternal state? The principle does apply. I hath not seen, neither ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love Him. Okay, obviously that involves you know, the idea that we can't possibly know all the good things God has prepared for us in heaven. True. But Paul, when he quotes that passage in the New Testament, says, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. So much of that was unrevealed in the Old Testament, but was revealed to us, the church, in the New Testament. That's the heart of what it is to be a mystery. In the New Testament, these mysteries may seem veiled and vague, but they are discernible. If it's a mystery, the details aren't spelled out for God's reasons. And it's all about our faith and trusting in Him. And I believe the rapture is one of these. We know it because it says it here. But it is discernible in Scripture. I want, to make, I want you to think about an image when we consider Old Testament prophecy. Because when the Old Testament prophets saw the future, they saw the comings of Christ at Bethlehem. They saw the coming of Christ at Armageddon. But they didn't seem to understand that these were two comings separated by a lot of years. That's why a lot of the Jews, you know, even the disciples at Christ's ascension said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? Acts chapter 1, and Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the season that God has put in His own power, but you all go and preach the gospel. I have traveled all over Nepal, and I find it interesting, the Himalayan mountains are very beautiful. They're very rocky and snowy. And you look at them from Kathmandu and you think, man, those are so close, I just want to get there. And then you start hiking, you think you're close to them because they look so close. And then you start seeing that, no way, you're separated from those peaks by numerous other mountain peaks which have valleys between them. I remember standing on a hillside in western Nepal years ago, this amazing panorama of the Himalayan giants all across the sky and they look close enough to touch. And we were talking about the, taking the gospel into these far reaches of western Nepal where it hadn't been named. And how we wanted to take the gospel to those mountains. I've got that picture. Sometimes I use it as a, a wallpaper on my laptop. But though they looked so close, there were many, many hills and ridges between where I was standing in those snowy peaks. Many valleys that I couldn't see. When I looked at those huge mountains, this is what I saw. I saw mountains. All, it looked like one big mass of mountains. But what couldn't be seen from my perspective were the deep valleys and the villages that were between those mountain ranges. Have you ever looked at a mountain in the distance and you think you're looking at one peak, but it's actually 
two mountains. You might have a peak and you might have a second mountain and a third mountain here, but because of the light and the distance, it looks like one big peak. Or maybe you see this, and it looks like a double-headed mountain, but it's two mountains. Or maybe a shorter mountain that looks taller than one we know to be taller. But our perspective is skewed because of distance. I believe this captures the perspective of the Old Testament prophets. Man, this eraser stinks. I can't... I'm getting my hands all filthy too. When we look at Old Testament prophecy, consider the prophet who stood and he had a viewpoint. And what he saw were mountain peaks of prophecy. When we think of mountain peaks, we can think of the things related to Christ's first coming, His birth, He'd be born in Bethlehem, His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, His crucifixion, His resurrection, all those things concerning His first coming. And the prophet also saw lots of things concerning His second coming, the millennial kingdom, all of these things related to Armageddon, to the Antichrist, all of these things. And from the prophet's perspective, it was one big mass of mountains. What the prophet could not see was the valley of the church age. From Pentecost to the rapture. He couldn't see it. It it was hidden from view. And so that's why from the Old Testament prophet's perspective, it looked like one coming, even though two comings were already revealed in the Torah. And so that's why the Old Testament prophet would jump from the first coming immediately to things concerning the second coming. The prophets didn't always understand what they were prophesying. The Bible says in 2 Peter that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Daniel spoke prophecies. And we see in the book of Daniel that he sat there stunned and in shock trying to figure out what these things mean meant. And he had to have an angel tell him what it meant. Okay? So the Old Testament prophet didn't necessarily understand what he was prophesying, but he was speaking as God's Spirit moved him to speak. We can look back and see this valley of the church age. We can look at the passage in the book of Numbers that speaks of Christ as a scepter, as a, as a star in Jacob and a scepter in Israel and see the two comings of Christ there. We can look back and see that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah that would come. To the Old Testament prophet, it was one and the same because they saw one mass of mountains. But John was a type of a forerunner. Jesus had a forerunner at His first coming. He'll have a forerunner at His second coming. He'll have two forerunners. And in a sense, another 144,000 to go preach the Gospel. I believe Moses and Elijah are going to come back are going to be allowed to come back to earth as God's witnesses. And we're going to see this later in the book of Revelation. A mountain peak, mountain peaks of prophecy. That's how you need to envision it when you study the Old Testament. Most Old Testament prophecies have a double fulfillment. They have an initial fulfillment, or what I call a shadow fulfillment, just like the temple and the tabernacle were shadows of heavenly things. Just like, and we're probably going to have to wait till next week, I'm really excited about this, the seven feasts that were given to Israel in Leviticus 23 are a type of God's redemptive plan for mankind. The last trumpet 
this called the trump of God uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's called the last trump here in 1 Corinthians 15. That's not the seventh trumpet in the middle of the tribulation. That's Jesus Christ fulfilling the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is the rapture. We're going to talk about that later. But they're, 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 they're dual. It's a dual fulfillment. Isaiah was given the prophecy of the virgin birth. His son Mahershala Hashbaz was born in Isaiah 8, a shadow fulfillment of Emmanuel born at Bethlehem. Antiochus Epiphanes, a shadow fulfillment of Antichrist. The king of Babylon, a shadow fulfillment of, Christ, of Satan as he reigns in Antichrist. That's the nature of Old Testament prophecy and it's because of the perspective of the prophets. And God chose to reveal it that way. The rapture is a mystery. The Old Testament prophets saw the return of Christ to earth with His saints. Even Enoch prophesied that the Lord would come with His saints. Daniel talked about that, but they did not see His coming in the air for His saints. This is a mystery. And after this mystery occurs, at the place we see it here in Revelation 4, Israel's prophetic clock will start kick, ticking again. And that prophetic clock is referred to in Romans 11 when God talks about grafting them in again. It's amazing how it works together. What is the period of tribulation? It's a period of wrath. God's wrath. It's called the wrath of the Lamb. Even the Gentiles who hate God, who are the subjects of His judgment, flee into the rocks and caves of the earth and beg the rocks to fall upon them, seek death and cannot find it, and say, save us from the wrath of the Lamb. It's the wrath of God. But the Bible says that the church has been saved from wrath. How can we be here during the tribulation if it's God's wrath being poured out on the earth being poured out on Israel to wake them up. But yet the Bible says we've been saved from wrath. Matthew, will you turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10? Bob, Romans 5, 9. Daniel, Revelation 3, 10. What do these passages teach us about the privileged position of the saints, the church? 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is described here in Revelation 4-18. through And it's spoken of by Paul in the past tense. It's so sure that it's as if it's already happened. Delivered from the wrath to come. Romans 5-9. We are saved from God's wrath. Just as Noah was saved from God's wrath. Just as Enoch was saved from God's wrath. Just as Lot was saved from God's wrath. So will the church. The tribulation is God's wrath. Revelation 3.10 What did Jesus tell the remnant at Philadelphia? Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The hour of temptation, the tribulation, the purpose of which is to try those that dwell upon the earth. 
to try to, to, to judge the Gentiles to wake up Israel. And Jesus says those that keep His Word, the faithful, the remnant, will be preserved from that. He will take them away from it. How much more scriptural proof do we need? People say, well, you can't say that because, you know, the Bible tells us we need to be prepared for trials and tribulations and all of this stuff. And, you know, the tribulation's just that. I mean, we've not been promised deliverance from those things. Our life is supposed to be hard as Christians. Well, people, we cannot fail to distinguish between the wrath of wicked men and the devil that we experience today. The trials and tribulations we see in this church age are a result of the wrath of wicked men and the devil. What we're going to see in Revelation isn't the wrath of wicked men and the devil, it's the wrath of God. There's a difference. We've been promised not deliverance from the wrath of wicked men and the devil. These things try us and bring us closer to the Lord. Sometimes they cost us our life. But we have been promised deliverance from the wrath of God. And let me tell you, the wrath of the devil in his utmost hatred the wrath of the heathen in their utmost hatred for the things of God pales in comparison to the holy righteous wrath of God against sin and against sinners. Make no mistake. Revelation chapter 6, 16 and 17. These men that are being judged by God under the sealed judgments says they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Friends, we've been delivered from that wrath. We're not to overly concern ourselves about the specific times and seasons, because we're not waiting for the revelation of Antichrist. We're waiting for the redemption of our body and the coming of Christ for us in the air. doesn't mean we shouldn't be studying these things and be wise like the children of Issachar in the Old Testament who understood the times and seasons and how men ought to act. But we ought to be looking toward Christ's coming in the air. Not worried about, well, is this guy, is, is this guy Antichrist or is the temple going to be built this year or whatever. Those things will happen. But we're not to concern ourselves overtly with those things, just like Paul told the Thessalonians. Because Christ is coming for His church. I'm going to stop here today. There, there are several other evidences. We've talked about some very key passages relating to the rapture. But I want to solidify your, your uh, convictions and things concerning the rapture. I want you to know why we as a church believe this doctrine. Why we preach this doctrine. So it's only appropriate to discuss it here. I'd like to encourage you... I think next week we're going to do something related to uh, uh, the kids are going to be doing some singing and stuff. So we're going to pick this up uh, after the Christmas holiday. So between now and then, I've got, a, I've got an assignment for you. Yes, there is homework in church sometimes. I've given homework in here before. I don't, you know, some people think that's uncommon. I, I don't know. Anyway... I want you to go to, to our ministry website, fpgm.org, and there's a tab on there called Training. I want you to click on that, and then in the sub-menu, I want you to click on Commentary. And then I want you to scroll down that page, and you're going to come to a section called Eschatology. What's Eschatology? The study of what? The end times. And there's a paper that I wrote on there called Out of Great Tribulation. It's a defense 
of the pre-tribulational rapture position that we hold. I wrote this years ago in seminary. I was taking a theology class with a post-trib professor who did not agree with my positions, but I was shocked one day in class when he held my paper up and said, guys, i got to say something today. I don't hold to the position that this young man holds, but this is the best paper I've ever read in terms of laying forth a scriptural defense of a pre-trib position, and I think all of you would benefit from reading it. Uh, This is very well done. So I was humbled by that. But I'd like you to read that, and it goes into detail about why we believe the Scriptures teach a pre-trib rapture. And then when we come back, I'm going to sum up some other things that we can look to in Scripture. And guys, you can use this when you talk and witness and try to exhort and comfort other believers that this is what we're looking for. It's not a doctrine that would keep us sitting on our rear ends. If people boast in this doctrine and are sitting around doing nothing, then they don't understand the doctrine. They take it for granted. They don't appreciate it. Jesus told in the parable, Occupy until I come. That means labor. This doctrine, this blessed hope of the believer ought to compel us to be preaching the Gospel while we still have opportunity. Because one thing we can't do in the presence of the Lamb, one thing we can't do in heaven is witness to the lost. They won't be there. So it ought to compel us. And those that understand it will be compelled. So I want you guys to try to take some time between now and then and study that. There is some stuff in there that's a little tough maybe to understand. Just ignore all that. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to know God's... I was writing this in a seminary environment uh, to professors that knew that stuff. But I think there's some good things in there that might help you understand. And when we come back, I'm excited that we're going to talk about some other scriptural evidences some things we see in the Scriptures, and then I want to share with you what I believe the last trump or the trump of God is. So not only are we going to show the post-trib position to be wrong, we're going to show the mid-trib position to be wrong because that trump of God is not the last trump of judgment. I believe it's very interesting what that is and where that fits on the calendar. And I want to talk a little bit about the Feast of Israel and how Christ already fulfilled the first four feasts that took place in the springtime, and then you have a gap, and the last three take place in the fall. You have that gap between spring and the fall, and then in the fall, He fulfills the last three. The last three would be the rapture, the second coming, and the millennial kingdom. I think these things are very, very interesting. And then we're going to find ourselves in the throne room of God, and we're going to find someone... We're going to find a group of people in that throne room. And then we're going to see one of the most important events in all of human history. And that's when Jesus, the Lamb, comes out and takes possession of something. Something that was given to Adam, and Adam sold it. And it's been possessed by Satan since the Garden of Eden. Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, is going to take it back. So, sorry I ran a few minutes over today. I hope this was a blessing. And again... From time to time, I think we ought to pause and consider some of these doctrines that are being talked about. We're going to do that with Daniel's 70th week in more detail. We're going to do that with some of the Millennial Kingdom passages in more detail. So, however long it takes. Maybe the rapture is going to take place now that we've gotten to the rapture. Maybe it's going to happen and we we won't finish the book, but all those mysteries will be revealed in heaven. Why don't we pray over the meal and then we'll eat in fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for this day. 
Thank You for the promises of Your Word, Lord. Not only a promise of eternal salvation, Lord, but the redemption of our bodies, Lord. Salvation from Your wrath. Thank, uh, thank You, Jesus, that You not only save us to God, but You save us from Him. And Lord, I just pray as these days wind down and the clock of the church draws to a close and You, you re restart that prophetic clock for Israel, Lord, I pray that You would help us to occupy until You come. Lord, may we occupy, may we be waiting and watching, just like those characters in the Christmas story, Lord, we're watching for Messiah. May we be like them, not like the world that's concerned about Christmas decorations and gifts and parties and celebrations and all and dead religion, Lord, and the folks that they're in church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. May we be occupying as the world goes on its merry way, may we occupy and watch, just like the world was going on its merry way with the Roman Empire in the days that Jesus became man for us, became a mass of human flesh for us. Lord, uh, use us this time of year to be a voice for the gospel and all year long. Bless our food that we've, that's been given to us today. Bless our fellowship around the table. In Jesus' precious name, amen.